This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research and Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, you know that I do not believe in stereotyping. Sure. I do know. I yes, you're not. Okay, a that didn't sound very You're confident. not a fan of the stereotypes. No, I you don't like, to, like it. to break them. This is where the problematic part goes. I go, but, but sometimes, sometimes, sometimes don't you think that like you kind of can know teachers in your department and you like know what subjects they want to teach. Like I kind of know who wants to teach economics, who wants to teach sociology, who wants to teach environmental science, who's the financial literacy person. Or, no, or it, am I wrong? Is that because you know them or because like you know what they're interested in? That could be true. Because I don't know so if no, this is actually so a no one walks in a room and you're you know like your colleagues. So people don't walk in a room and you're not like, that's an economics teacher. That's it. Maybe, maybe economics. Maybe economics. <laughs> See, we're now we're going problematic place. We think you can stereotype who wants to be an economics teacher. But I mean, I think, you know, we and we've already had episodes on this, right? Like where our guests are doing like critical work in economics, which you just don't traditionally associate, right? You think oh, that real right, critical yeah. work is going to happen in sociology. Um, I'm not surprised when I see a world history teacher doing critical work. I don't know. Like there's subjects I, I'm not surprised to see that people who are really interested in justice, who are interested in doing hard histories, topics like that. I feel like you there's subjects I just economics. expect them to kind of go towards. But we need critical economics teachers. And, we, and we've had great episodes on doing, you know, feminist economics for example with neil shanks if you remember that episode oh yeah that was fun what was your did you get economics in high school i didn't i didn't it's actually interesting you know i taught in oklahoma city as you know yeah yeah. and we didn't really have economics we had sociology and psychology in my school like we're the main electives and we a psychology was very popular because we had a psychologist who was also a teacher and so people liked his class in psychology's kind of interesting and so yeah so i i taught sociology classes and love that because there was like no curriculum and so i just could actually oh, yeah and you guess what I, I could teach critical like i just did five units i did like race gender class and i can't remember the last two right now it was a long time ago but i could just explore those topics for like a month each which was amazing it's interesting so just thinking about economics and in, in at schools in my high school where i where i teach they get it in health which is interesting. Mm. Um, they talk a lot about in senior health. They talk a lot about budgeting and, and what that means. But I think that might be. Is that economics or is that financial literacy? Yeah, it's more financial lit. That's more financial lit than economics. We do have an economics course. My And this is where I could. My friend Todd teaches it. He's very nice. Oh, Todd. That's we should Todd. have him on the, on the show sometime. You know, but to. I don't, again, we're, we're not doing stereotypes. So I just, but do you think that there's a lot of like justice oriented critical teachers who are like, I want to teach financial literacy. I think we should explore this. 
and also if there, if there are some, to... I want to hear those stories. I want to know. Yeah, let's do it. But I think you have someone in store for us to talk a little bit about critical economic literacy and education. That's correct. Yep. We, as, as our listeners know, we can't do it. We don't, we don't have no. the knowledge, not we don't have the experience. Well, we, we outsource, we outsource our, uh, yes, we have our knowledge experts come in and talk to us. We phone a friend. And in this case, we're phoning a friend. So we are happy to welcome into the podcast, Agata Soroka. Welcome. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. It's we are to, thrilled to have you here. It's good to be here. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit, start with just telling us a little bit more about your background in education? Sure. So I started my career as an educator while pursuing my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto. So I'm a Canadian. And then as a full-time student, I worked during university as a supply education assistant in the greater Toronto area. And I worked with you know, K to 12 students in sort of all parts of the city. In the summers, I also ran an arts camp at Seneca College in Toronto. And all of these experiences, you know, um, both helped me pay my way through school, of course, but they also helped me gain the 300 hours of experience I needed to gain entry into the Bachelor of Education program at the University of Toronto. So that was at OISE, um, which is the Faculty of Education there, where I received my degree. And then when I became a teacher, I also worked at an overseas Ontario school in Nanjing, China, before deciding to pursue my master's at the University of Ottawa, and then to stay on and and do my PhD there. During graduate school, I also worked as a research assistant on a project with UCLA. so, So that's my connection to the University of California as a Canadian. And I was also a part-time professor in both the teacher education program and later in the graduate studies program. So now I'm at the University of California, Riverside, and I work in the Graduate School of Education with the Civic Engagement Research Group. Um, So this group really engages in education reform efforts that promote equitable, informed, and effective youth political participation. And I'm pretty sure you've had a few folks on from CERG on this podcast I'm currently working on the Connecting Classrooms to Congress project with education scholars and political oh, wow. scientists, yeah, with political scientists um, at UC Riverside, Brown, and the Ohio State University. And so we're developing and testing a social studies curriculum where high school students get to study a pressing policy issue, and then they get to engage around that issue with their member of Congress in an online deliberative town hall. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, we have had on on episode 92, we had Teaching Against Misinformation. We had Erica Hodgen and Joe Kahn, who are, I think, from part of that project. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly who I work with. <laughs> well, you are lucky because we love both of them. And we were really excited to have them on, on the show. I have to go back a little bit. So you first, you have a, a really fascinating education story, but I'm really impressed by the requirements to get into the bachelor's education program. 300. Like, 300 hours that that is that common in Canada you know I'm not sure if now it is still but at the time that I was applying which was around 2008 I believe that was one of the requirements you had to have a pretty high GPA and about 300 hours of experience you know in some kind of education capacity but and also the year that I got in, it was like one in seven people got in. And so I was very lucky. Wow. But so it was very competitive. And teaching is generally like a pretty competitive profession in Canada. 
now it used to be a one-year program now it's two years that you have to do in Ontario and the other thing I would add is that you know a lot of folks couldn't get in to some of the teacher education programs at that time in Ontario and so a lot of folks went either to it was like either Australia or Buffalo to to get a teaching degree so it Buffalo, was New York yes oh my yeah, because it was. I guess it was the, like Australia was really far, and then Buffalo was pretty close. So, I, or it was just I don't know why those schools in particular took a lot of Canadian teachers. So, hey, every everybody's headed to Buffalo now because remember our recent guest just headed to Buffalo as an assistant professor. Brittany Jones just went there to join Dr. Like Eric King, who's at Buffalo. So they got good things going on at Buffalo. Amazing. Well, without further ado, it seems like, Agata, your education paid off because you have been published in Theory and Research in Social Education, which is a very difficult journal to get published in. So Mm. congratulations. Thank you. So the article is titled Teaching Young People More Than, quote, How to Survive Austerity from Traditional Financial Literacy to Critical Economic Literacy Education. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about this project? Yes, and I'd actually love to give you a bit of a broader context for my research first, just because financial literacy education is is so often misunderstood, which I think is probably made clear in in your intro. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those things that seems really empowering and and appears really common sense. Why wouldn't we want to teach students about finances, right? It's a basic life skill. So I just wanted to clarify that, you know, critical scholars, including me, aren't saying we shouldn't teach students how to budget. We're concerned um, with the way that financial literacy education is really used as an excuse to overlook the root causes of poverty and inequality and financial insecurity. So financial literacy education is, is often advanced as a salve for everything from predatory lending to structural economic inequality to racism and even to, say, the devastating global effects of the pandemic recently. So the issue really is with the way it's positioned and framed in our public and political discussions and, of course, how those have influenced curriculum, right? Right. And just to give you a good example of how it might be seen as problematic, economists Hamilton and Darity, for example, argue that the racial wealth gap, you know, is often framed as a matter of deficient knowledge and poor decision making on the part of Black Americans. But of course, it's not actually a matter of choice or personal agency or financial literacy, right? Instead, you know, they show that the racial gap is really a result of deep-seated structures that perpetuate both inequality and racism, such as intergenerational wealth transfers or the kind of historical advantages from which whites continue to benefit in college admissions, right, through various channels. And I know this is really timely to the discussions currently taking place around affirmative action and, and legacy admissions. And so my research, broadly speaking, sheds light on on various educational trends. So, you know, I started this work on financial literacy during my master's, and that looked at, at what I was just saying now. It looked at how financial literacy standards 
in social studies curriculum documents in both Canada and the U.S. implicitly blame students and their families for their poverty without addressing the broader economic and, and social political conditions. I've also looked at financial literacy education as a movement, you know, the push of it often comes at the expense of other subjects, such as history or civics, that get squeezed out of the curriculum to make room for more personal finance content. And so my research has really looked at the ways that financial literacy education is is routinely presented as this sort of value-neutral, common-sense solution to problems that are technical but not political in nature. And so the teachers in the study I published in theory and research in social education work to make this neutral framing visible uh, through a more critical economic literacy education that engages students around issues of economic justice. Yes. Yeah, so right, right off the bat, I mean, that resonates with my understanding of financial literacy, which I probably didn't do a good job of explaining, but you, th- I always think of it as, like you said, being very individualistic, right? Here's how the individual can address financial issues. And if you can't address them, it's your own fault, as opposed to here's, it seems like financial literacy classes would not generally talk about how the GI bill favored white families and you know discriminated against and didn't offer that ability to to build generation wealth to black families in the US. And so does that does that generally but I'm guessing that some teachers don't limit financial literacy to these individual decisions and that's part of the problem in the framing of the field. Is that is that accurate? That's exactly it. So that's I guess what's special about the teachers in my study is that they sort of see financial literacy and critical economic literacy as the same when they're teaching financial literacy for them. This is how they think it should be taught because to separate all of, you know, the individual from what happens in society is really problematic for them. So can you tell us a little bit more just about the study. So how did you find participants? What did what did the study look like? And what did you find? Sure. So I actually took up this research because even though I was, you know, coming across a lot of really great work problematizing financial literacy education and and theorizing what a thicker or more critical or or more transformative version might look like, you know, little of this scholarship was empirical or done with teachers. And then there's this other camp of research too that that does look at what teachers are doing, but it's really only to measure how prepared teachers feel and how effective their teaching is. So it doesn't really delve at all into how they make sense of financial literacy education or any of the politics around it. And I have to say, I was a little bit worried, you know, am I going to find participants that teach financial literacy in in the way that I would imagine they could? But as as I was beginning this research um, in September 2017, the Quebec education minister announced this new mandatory financial education course and and received some pushback as a result. So, for example, the president of the Quebec uh, Provincial Association of Teachers stated that the introduction of a class like this is not in line with our philosophy of education and that it was coming from the financial groups bankers and whatnot, whereas teachers have more of a liberal view. You're supposed to acquire knowledge that would open up your horizons and help you from a critical standpoint. So, you know, while these statements came from union leaders, they were really meant to to represent the perspectives of 
teachers in, in this province in Quebec. So this sort of made me think that there must be teachers out there who, you know, either resist or, or reframe in some ways these very conventional and, and individualistic approaches to financial literacy education. And I was right. I was able to recruit 10 teachers for my study who self-identified as taking a critical approach um, to financial literacy education. But of course, they're self-identifying, right? So their ideas about criticality really varied. And so in this article, I actually focus on seven teachers who I, I thought were more on the critical side of the spectrum. And the title of this article comes from Vincent, one of the participants in my study, who talks about, you know, some of the problems with the course in Quebec, but really about financial literacy in general. And he says, there's nothing about this program that is really providing students the critical thinking skills that they need to go forward. It's this very individualistic perspective on financial education, which really seems aimed at helping young people survive austerity, as opposed to helping young people prosper and maybe be part of building a prosperous society. And then the last thing I'd add is that, you know, I was writing up this research in 2020 and 2021 during overlapping crises, right? The COVID pandemic, of course, and its financial crash, climate disasters, escalating economic inequality, anti-democratic politics rising worldwide. And of course, a lot of this is, is still ongoing, but also the various social movements that that took place as a result. So, you know, all of this really comes through in this study as well. Dr. Sor uh, Soroko, do you mind just explaining what austerity is? Sure. So financial literacy education is often seen as a way to get individuals to really ensure themselves and their, their families against various risks that once, you know, were managed by the state and, and things like trade unions, but increasingly we're turning to private insurance mechanisms within financial markets. So austerity measures really sort of eliminate any chance for a, a safety net. And the way that they work in, in tandem with financial literacy education is that, you know, they're sort of seen as as what Chris Arthur calls um, two sides of the same neoliberal coin, right? So maybe on their own, they're insufficient. They need to sort of work with, they need to get the working classes to consent to the various rollbacks on public spending and the various extensive cuts to social programs. And so financial literacy education then, you know, starts to appear as this sort of solution, right? So that we're giving people the working classes and people living in poverty, you know, the, the kind of tools that they need to survive a changing world. But instead, they sort of avoid any kind of collective risk management, right? And they either acquiesce or, or they welcome more austerity. And so one way to look at that, too, is that, you know, financial literacy education can be looked at as part of this resilience discourse that's really popular right now, right, where we position political agency within the individual rather than in state capacity. So, for example, in response to economic crashes, financial literacy education appears as this coping strategy that, that makes people more resilient in the future so that they can face, you know, market failures and economic collapses, right? But if we're positioning 
financial crashes as inevitable, right, then we're seeing that this is really contradictory thinking, right? You know, if these crashes are inevitable, and we live in a capitalist system that ensures that we experience them, then financial literacy education is not really going to be effective. So students are essentially, you know, instructed to learn to fail. I also liked, you know, you started off the paper by talking about teachers who rejected like financial literacy, you know, curriculum that was being proposed. And I loved one of the quotes from the teachers too, that just said, to me, it looks like all the materials were written by bankers. And I think that that kind of, that's another way of capturing it, right? Like, um, and that's historically, it seems like we always had seen to have people in, in positions of power, right? In whatever area it is who tend to have control over the curriculum. And so it's really great to see teachers pushing back in this. And so was that, what kind of, you know, response did did a lot of these critical teachers face when they pushed back on this type of curriculum or standards? And and how is it in, in Canada, right? Is there, is it maybe very school to school or is there support for teachers to really be, you know, intellectual transformers of their curriculum? How, how did it play out? So the teachers in my study, and again, these are, you know, sort of, hand-picked, you know, selected teachers, so they don't speak for other teachers in Canada. But I would say the teachers in my study all felt, for the most part, like they had the intellectual freedom to be able to do whatever version they wanted of financial literacy education. They were always able to tie it back to the standards, or even for some teachers, you know, they were able to cite, when I asked about whether they worried about pushback from parents or from community members, they said, no, I'm not worried because, you know, this kind of teaching is tied to some of the school board policies on anti-oppressive education. So I think most of the teachers in my study didn't really feel any pushback with the exception of one teacher who talked about the idea of like, you know, talking about anything like Marxism and I guess with social media and being uh, folks being online so much, he did worry a little bit about some of, of the content that he was teaching and that it could be misinterpreted and that kind of thing. But I would say that was just the one case. And the other teachers felt pretty supported both in terms of their administration one way in, in in which they didn't feel maybe as supported is that they hoped to have more of a community around this kind of teaching and that right now they're sort of doing that work alone and we're hoping to be able to connect with others and work, you know, collectively to be able to do more critical teaching with others. That's really great. And um, I really love the article for a lot of reasons. One is you just you do a good job of summarizing the issues in the article. Table one is I found really helpful, right? In a way of organizing like common features of mainstream versus critical approaches to financial literacy, which for me, again, like I kind of could guess at what some of the issues were, but but this is is far more clear. And so did did the and a lot of this is based on research and theory and things like that. So did a lot of these teachers have like deep understandings of this or did they have to go into these classes and kind of figure some of this out for themselves? Are there resources, a lot of resources available for critical approaches to financial literacy or were they developing them themselves? I think a little bit of both. And I have to say that a lot of the teachers did have, you know, a 
quite a bit of theoretical knowledge. But I guess what I wanted to show in this study is that was sort of part of it is I wanted to really lift teachers up. And maybe I don't talk about this so much in the article, but in my broader study, you know, the aim was really to to position teachers as as intellectuals, right? That they're capable of weighing in on these public and political discussions around financial literacy education, and that they have interesting ideas to contribute to the scholarship that's happening on this topic. So that was really one of my aims with, with this work. How were I just from your teacher interviews, how was the response from the students about this, this type of literacy? I think from the interviews, you know, I so one thing that comes to mind is one of the teachers saying something like students don't really want to learn about mortgage rates, right? (laughs) Like that's not that's not going to be that riveting lesson that they'll look back on 10 years down the road and say, wow, you know, that time we looked at mortgage rates, I'll never forget that lesson, right? A lot of teach, uh, a lot of students want to sort of ask the big questions, right? Like, how is it that in a country, you know, as rich as Canada, there are people who don't have access to clean drinking water. Like, how is this possible? So those are the kinds of questions that in the experience of some of these teachers, students are more interested in learning about, right? And not that, again, not that, you know, budgeting and saving and investing are not important life skills that that students should learn in school. Of course they are, but, you know, you can learn those those skills sort of in, in math class, right? You can calculate, I don't know, compound interest in math class, right? And a lot of, you know, financial products change so much over time anyway that by the time you finish school, I mean, you're going to have to learn all over again, right? If you're buying a house, if you're lucky enough to be able to buy a house in, in the current economy. So my sense from teachers was really that students are interested in in learning about like the, those big questions. So in table three of your paper, I like looking at tables, if you can't tell. I'm a big you, fan of tables. Yes, they're great. They're, they're really sturdy. Great. They, they summarize lots, of, not those types of tables, Michael. They summarize <laughs> lots of information really succinctly, and they really help kind of put the stories in the article to kind of like give that framework. So in table three, you present this critical economic literacy framework, which has these kind of three categories with examples. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that will really help our listeners kind of grasp some of the the work that came from teachers out of this. Yeah. So, you know, based on my data collection, uh, this is sort of what came out from it. And it, it outlines the distinct set of knowledge and skills and pedagogical strategies that, that teachers actually use in their classrooms to reframe conventional financial literacy teaching. And so to give you just one example of a, of a skill that teachers might use, I really love this one and I've, I've cited this one before. So if anyone has ever listened or heard any of my other work, I've, I've talked about this, but it's challenging dominant narratives. So Eric, one of the teachers, and I'll quote him here, he says, we tend to get pushed that we got here with a free market. And those who got wealthy got wealthy because they had such great ideas and were so much smarter and so much more efficient and better at doing things than everyone else. Even people like Bezos, who is supposedly the richest man, but Amazon was built on an infrastructure built by the public. Products are shipped all over the world using that infrastructure, which runs a huge and environmental debt that everyone shares. It's important to consider the externalities and the public influence that has helped those 
who are perceived as successful now get to um, where they are. So here, you know, we see Eric teaching students to challenge dominant ideas about the free market and, and meritocracy. He's also getting students to reflect on whether it's possible for individuals to be entirely self-sufficient or self-made or, you know, entirely responsible for either uh, their, their success or maybe their lack of success. Students also get to learn um, about externalities and the kinds of costs that are incurred by the public, right, when individuals or, or corporations build wealth. And this kind of teaching might also fall into another category in the framework around environmental issues, right, when, when students are making financial decisions. So, you know, tying or connecting financial literacy education to, to issues of climate justice, right, is, is, is also important. But I really love this quote from Eric because it really summarizes, I think, the ways that we can look at financial literacy education, you know, in a more social political context, right? Yeah, and it's re it's really helpful, again, the way that you organize this into the knowledge students need around issues like eco ecological sustainability and distribution of wealth and power, and then the skills they need to understand that, you know, acquiring the language and navigating arguments and then the strategies for teaching it, right? That's, I think it just covers so much. And it, um, in that sense, it's so, this is such a helpful research article for, I think both, you know, fellow researchers who are trying to understand kind of how the sausage is made, but also for mm -hmm. teachers, you know, who want to really just learn from this. So what would be your advice to those groups, like having conducted this study? Well, I think, you know, while my study does make some novel contributions to the literature. I do think a lot more work and research could be done with teachers to develop this framework further, especially, you know, a framework that prioritizes pressing problems like ecological sustainability, growing economic inequality, racism, of course, that all, you know, the study touches upon, right? But, but all of this needs to be de developed. And especially in various contexts um, in the United States, as you know, this is a Canadian study, and in the context of schooling in a just and democratic society, you know, I'm, I'm aware that this poses enormous sort of intellectual and political challenges. And so we have to do more work in the area of teacher preparation as well, and to support teachers to, to, to teach this kind of more expansive version of financial literacy education. And I'd say that for educators who are interested in using this framework, I'm really glad that you like all my tables and the framework, but I do want to say that, you know, it's not exhaustive, right? Or, or prescriptive. It's really meant to show the range of possibilities and to spark ideas and inspiration for teachers. And I really hope that comes through, especially with the teachers in the study who are able to incorporate this kind of teaching in courses like business and marketing. So, you know, that quote I just read from Eric about challenging dominant narratives about Jeff Bezos and, and so on, that actually came from a marketing course that he taught. And, you know, one of the teachers in, in my study was lucky enough to have an entire course dedicated to economic justice, but that's not a reality for a lot of teachers. So hopefully teachers can use this framework as a sort of entry point into thinking about how they could incorporate some of these skills and strategies into courses that they're already teaching. Or, you know, if they're being asked to teach a course on personal finance and they'd like to understand some of the 
political and, and theoretical debates around financial literacy education, this article would be helpful for them and also for ideas, you know, about how to teach this topic in a way that lets students imagine that a different world is possible, right? Nice. That's great. That's great. A world where we can all teach critical financial literacy and no one mm-hmm. is stereotyped of who can do that. <laughs> Everyone can be prepared and grow. All they have to do is start with this article. It's a good starting point. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Agata Soroko, for chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having me here. It's been a lot of fun. So where are some places where our listeners can find out more about you and your work online? Well, I actually do have a website. So mm-hmm. my has some of my articles and other things I've done and it's agatasoroko.com and I guess I'm on what used to be called Twitter but I'm not super active on it but you can definitely reach out to me there and also my email is up on my website too so I'd love to hear from from others who are interested in this kind of work. For sure. And we will make sure to get all of that in the show notes. And if you're listening to this, when Twitter now X has crumbled, uh, <laughs> then then we'll just go to Dr. Soroka's website and go there. So thank you again so much for joining us today. We certainly do hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thank now, you. Oh, you're welcome. We're all about sharing the learning at the Vision of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, Hit us up in various places at Visions of Ed, or sometimes we're on Facebook. And of course, and more importantly, if you haven't subscribed already, we're Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. You increasingly just have to walk up to us in person. Like we're not online hardly anymore, but that's actually, yeah. We have emails still, so you can can send electronic mail directly to us. It gets there really quickly. And... If you write us a five-star review, we'll read it on the air. And we would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. I'm still on X. They're calling it X. (laughs) I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to even be there still. I just have a few accounts I like following Uh, at Dan Kretka. And I'm Michael Milton currently hanging out with Sabrina in Greendale. Until next time. Yes, sure. Uh, this is the next time when, when, yeah, when people get that reference, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Oh, no, signing off. <laughs>